Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are going to be in the book of Acts, and if you want to turn there, we'll be in Acts chapter 4. I have a question for you this morning. What would you say is the greatest danger to Christianity? What is the one thing that could do the greatest damage to our faith and to our community as the people of Jesus? I think it's a, it's a reasonable question to consider. And what we see over and over in, in both the Bible and in church history and in our own experience is that we inside the church tend to worry and fret and clamor about all the stuff outside the walls of the church. But what the greatest danger is actually inside the walls of the church. The thing that could, that could cause us to stumble is actually in here with us. See, it's easier for us, I think, sometimes to worry about politics and culture and people dissing the Christian faith on TikTok or Facebook, depending on your age. Uh, but it's, you know, it's easy for us to think and have great angst about philosophical shifts and economic pressures and post-Christian cultures, uh, kind of understanding of truth. Uh, but don't, and don't hear me wrong. Those things are problematic. Uh, those things are things that we need to address, that we need to, uh, that, that we need to call out and that we, need to, uh, that we need to work through, but they are not the greatest danger to the Christian faith. In fact, I, I don't believe any of those, uh, those present the greatest danger to us in our time. Uh, so turn with me to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, and what we're going to see is the greater danger, greatest danger is not outside the church, but inside the church. And in this passage, we see the beauty of a church that's built up upon the grace of God and the power of the Spirit and God's presence in their midst, only to be interrupted by a breakdown that comes through sin in its own people. Uh, look with me at verse, uh, starting at verse 42, or 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as he had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with, with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself part of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrive this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped, and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. And in it, we see one of the more terrifying, I think, troubling passages that we see in the New Testament. One of the that for modern ears is oftentimes hard for us to hear, and in a way, uh, th- this can be very difficult to understand, not because it's complex, but because it's just hard truth. And it's not because it's difficult to comprehend what happens, it's difficult to accept what happens. So let's walk through this story and see if we can make some sense of it. Now, let me just refresh uh, for you and remind you kind of what's happened in Acts so far. Uh, after Jesus died and was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples over a period of about 40 days. Uh, over 500 people saw him, and he taught about the kingdom of God, taught about the, his return and the things that would happen there. But he told the believers that they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. And so you kind of have this movement of God that's supposed to take place as the disciples were to share the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection and and the grace and the love of God that had come to them. They were supposed to share it where they were, and then they were supposed to move outward to share it to the ends of the earth. And so from this this tiny little speck on a map, with, with a group that started with 120 people in one town, there was going to be a movement that spread throughout the entire globe. And in fact, that has continued even to this day. And so the fact that we're, we're dealing with the epicenter of a brand new community and a new movement of God is, is going to be important to what we see here. Now, this is the very beginning of a remarkable move. In fact, they had already gone from 120 believers to 3,000 and to 5,000 and then more in a very short amount of time. And it starts to get the attention of all the people that are around them. And so it gets... Positive, positive attention, it gets negative attention. And in fact, what you see is uh, that the because of the, the healing of a lame man and Peter's preaching of the message, the religious leaders started to take notice and they called him into the principal's office and kind of slapped their hands and said, stop talking about this guy named Jesus. And so you start to see this, uh, this kind of counterattack to the movement that God had begun. In Acts 4, the attack comes from without. The religious leaders are attacking Jesus' followers. In Acts 5, though, we see that there's also an attack from within. And that attack's going to come from within the community of faith themselves. But earlier, when they experienced the attack from the religious leaders, um, it says that they lifted their voices together to God in prayer. And so what what was their response to experiencing this kind of an attack? They got together and they began to pray. Acts 4.31 says, When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So whenever you think about this Acts Acts community of faith, in Acts 4.32-37, what does it describe or what does it portray them as? Man, they are together. It says they're of one heart and one mind. They're a caring community. It says that they're generously giving in a radical way to meet the needs of anyone who had a physical need. And so they're caring for the practical needs of one another, uh, but they're alive with the truth of the gospel, and they're filled with uh, the, the love of one another. It, and you, so you see this example, and it's kind of a remarkable community, and we're, we're intended to catch kind of a, a glimpse 
of what life in the early church would have been like and the, the beauty of being built up in that moment. You notice there's two characteristics that he talks about. Uh, two, two times the word great is used in, this, in these verses. Uh, you notice what the first is. It says that there was great power to the preaching of the message, to their witness, to their sharing gospel truth. There's great power and conviction that was going out. And then it says, and great grace poured upon them all. So you have great power of preaching, uh, of sharing the witness, of testifying to the gospel truth. And you have great grace that descended or that rested upon all of them. And grace was, is really the, the foundation of, of the message of Christ. That this was, uh, these two things went together. And so we see that they're experiencing God's presence in their midst and they're ex- through the preaching of the word. And they're also experiencing God's favor and his, his, his shining, his light upon them in the experience of the relationships that is really a result of grace. And it's interesting, what was it that they prayed for if you look at the verses just before this? They prayed and asked God for boldness in the face of, of pressure, in the face of hardship, in the face of difficulty. They said, God, would you make us bold? They didn't say, God, would you just make it easy? God, would you just take all the pressure away? God, would you take all the hardship and all the persecution and all the questions and everything outside the walls of the church, would you just make it all go away and make life easier on us? They didn't pray for that. They prayed and said, God, would you make us bold to trust you deeply in the midst of everything we're going through? Now, it's interesting to me that this boldness, uh, that what we see in verses 32 to 37 is a direct answer to the prayer in verse 31 for boldness. But do you know how, do you see how boldness shows up for them? Boldness shows up in their trust in the gospel and the grace of God, but also in the practical sharing of the community. So it shows up in word and in deed. Uh, Isn't that true in the life of of, of a community? Isn't that what you want? You want there to be truth, but you also want there to be love. You want there to be, to, to be boldness in terms of the words that, that are spoken, but you also want there to be actions that mirror those words. What do we say when you don't have both? We say things like, well, you don't practice what you preach, right? Like, you, you got a good message, you sound really good, but you don't actually live out the things that you say. You don't practice what you preach. You need word and deed. You need truth and love. You need, you, you need the witness of the gospel, but you need also the grace of it being worked out in the life of the community and the relationships that are there. And so these two go hand in hand. You see that they're bold in their witnessing. They're sharing. They're telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. But you also see they're bold and pretty radical in their generosity to other people. That this doesn't make them kind of sit back and go, man, I think I'm going to hold all my stuff for myself. But it says they're actually going and giving away their possessions. They're selling land. They're selling property. They're giving it to any time there's a need. They're rallying together to meet that need and do what's, uh, what goes together. Do you see how word and action work together? See, because when we preach the word of truth and we receive that and we trust the gospel, it does something in our hearts that compels us to respond in, in, in love and in action towards others. So if we receive grace, we give grace. But then uh, the same as uh, the opposite is true as well, that when we respond and we act in love and we act in generosity and we act in goodness to others, it actually reaffirms or reinforces the gospel message and says, man, if that produces this kind of life in people, then that message must be true. And so you see that these two things go hand in hand and they work together. So the message empowers the action and the action further reinforces the power of the message. We need both in any Christian community. And so Luke is 
gradually, uh, you remember in Acts 2, there's this uh, section where he talks about the church and how they were together and they broke bread together and they met together in, in the temple and they met together in homes and they rallied together around the truth of God's word, but they loved one another and they cared for one another. They were sharing life together. And so here in Acts 4, you get another kind of glimpse of what that life is like. And Luke's kind of unpacking for us, this is what God's community is supposed to be like in action. And so he's going to then give us this example. And the example he focuses on in this passage happens to be uh, wrestling with the area of money. And so he talks about the radical, radically generous acts that are shown here. You know, in verse 34, uh, it's interesting. It makes clear that this generosity was voluntary. This wasn't something that they were forced to do. It wasn't an obligation. This wasn't kind of a press down from above. Everyone's required to do this. But it was a voluntary thing. It says that as anyone had need they would rally together and meet that need. And so there was a sense in which this happened over time as needs uh, presented themselves. um, This has happened in the life of our church as well, just by the way. Uh, That there's been times in the the life of our church where we've had people that have had needs and the people of our church have rallied together and it wasn't something top down that the leadership of the church said, we need to all go do this and everyone needs to write a check for this. But there were people that came together and just said, hey, how do we care for so-and-so? And they began to write checks, and they took an account, and they got that money, and they put it together. I always remember a time when we actually had a conversation with a counselor, and there was someone in our church who was going through just some really difficult circumstances, but were also uh, going through just some own personal struggles and other things. And so they were in counseling as they were walking through this. And in a conversation with the counselor, the counselor said, you know, oftentimes people have a hard time ever turning the corner when they're, they're in this situation. But then he said a pretty remarkable thing. He said, but I I have great confidence that we're going to see progress here because of the community of your church that's surrounding this individual in the midst of this time. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That someone who's walking with this person individually through a process looks at the way you all loved and cared for her and said, I have confidence that that she's going to work through this because she has the support of a community. That's what the church was meant to be. And that's what you saw in Acts 4. And that's what they were ultimately doing and what they're about. Now, when you think about the generosity, selling a piece of land or selling a house, giving the property, uh, just to say the obvious, that wasn't normal. That wasn't normal in their day. It's not normal in our day. In their day, in fact, uh, the reason I think Luke mentions it is because it was so radical. In Greco-Roman world, uh, there was kind of a common practice of that, if, that you would respond with reciprocity to, uh, to the people that were in your social sphere. Meaning that if someone was, uh, if you were upper class and someone else was upper class and they suffered a financial setback, you would give to them to keep them within a certain social order. So that, uh, so that they would not drop down to a different level. They'd be able to hold on to all their stuff. But there was an understanding that if I cared for you, you have to turn around and care for me if I ever get in trouble. So if I scratch your back, you're obligated then to scratch my back when I itch. And so there was, that was kind of the common practice, that whatever kind of social circle you ran in, that you kind of rallied together with people that were very much just like you. And, uh, but you're, there was an obligation that I have to take care of you. It was very transactional. I'm going to take care of your needs, but then you've got to turn around and take care of me if if my industry goes down, if, if my stock investments crash, then you got to prop me up, and I'll prop you up when your business goes through a hard time. But we're going to take care of our own. And in that time, it was a very small percentage that were actually upper middle. Almost everyone was in the lower classes. Now, what happens here is radically different. Because what you see here is not a sense of reciprocity. You see a, sen- a sense of free giving. 
that people have no expectation of concern and they're giving across any lines. There's no statement of this group and that group or this sphere and that sphere or this social circle and this other social circle. But they're coming together as the people of God. In fact, it's, it's presented much more like a family. Because what do you do when a family member goes through a hard time? You're like, dude, tell me what you need. We're going to work through this. And that's exactly the way this church group was responding to one another. But it was they were giving to anyone as they had need in order to make sure that all of their basic needs were met. So it says there was no one that was out without care. Uh, what we see here is that sharing is a result of the experience of grace. In fact, one guy says the powerful preaching of the gospel motivated the early Christians to such generosity, not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions. Isn't that interesting? The leaders weren't kind of going, well, we're going to do a series here, and we will sometimes do a series on preaching or on giving. Like, there will sometimes be a day where we will do that, and we'll teach on stewardship, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point here is, what was inspiring them to give to someone was not the leader saying, hey, let me tell you how much you ought to give to this situation, or let me orchestrate the setting. It was just that they saw the gospel of Christ. They saw the resurrection of Jesus. They saw everything that it meant for them. And they saw that God through his spirit was bringing together a new community and creating a new people that were like family. And so they loved them as though they were family because of the grace that brought them together. They were of one heart and of one soul. And because of that, they naturally, out of the overflow, gave to, one, to the needs that were there. Uh, we sometimes refer to this in our world as grace giving because it's not forced or manipulated. It's not an obligation. This is something that you do of, free, of a free gift of grace in response to the grace that you've received. And in fact, you, you do it joyfully and cheerfully because it flows out of a heart that's grateful to God for the love and grace he gave you. That ultimately is what I think it's pointing to. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, it says, uh, one must give as he's decided in his own heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Meaning it's not, but it's not us to tell you what you ought to give. or It wasn't up to the leaders, to Peter, to come to people and say, Hey, you know that, like I know that you've got that extra, that extra property over there on the corner. Like I think you maybe need to, that, this isn't what was happening. There were people that just freely were coming together in order to give, and they were doing it cheerfully. There was no reluctance, there was no compulsion. They were doing it joyfully, and it was, it was resulting from a radical grace. Uh, you know, I couldn't help but think as I, was, as I was looking at this and studying this this week, I couldn't help think about some of the things that happened in the life of our church. Did you know we've actually had someone in our church that sold a house and gave us the proceeds? That when we, when we did a building campaign uh, back in the fall of 2020, crazy time in the midst of, of our world, crazy time in the midst of our church, in the midst of that situation where we, we were convicted that God said uh, that it was time for us to go find a home. And as we stepped out in faith and said, Lord, we don't know how it's going to work. We don't know how to do this, but we're trusting that you, wanna, you want us to move forward and to find a, a church home, a place that would give us a permanent, a permanent residence for our, for our mission here as a church. There was a family who was fairly new to our church that said, we just feel led by the Lord to give a rental property that we own to the church, and you can sell it. And that honestly kick-started our campaign that allowed us to buy the property we now own in downtown Edmond. Isn't that remarkable? I just couldn't help think about, like, here they are, they're selling houses because of the grace that they've been given in order to care for the needs of the community, and God's still doing that today. I talked to someone else a couple weeks ago and found out that there was a family in our church that actually took on a second job. 
but they took on some contract work on in addition to their normal job because they said, I just, I really want to give a certain amount and I just know that this is the way I can get that done. And so they actually had worked a second job for a time in order to give to us. And we didn't come up with that idea. This was something they just did. And we found out about it later. It's remarkable to see the radical work that grace does in someone's life when they're excited. And they just say, man, I, I joyfully want to be engaged with a mission that the Spirit is at work in the church. Isn't that good news? And then God, God was at work that way in the time of the Bible and the time of Acts, and he's still at work in that way now. And so what happens is when we trust that we have the love of a heavenly father who says he'll care for us and he'll never leave us nor to forsake us, then we are free to live with boldness and fearlessness in the midst of, in the midst of a world that sometimes will push against us. It's a simple reality of the Christian faith. That what you see is that if we receive much from God, we give much to others. If God's grace comes to us, then we give grace to others. Uh, there's ways we say this sometimes, that if we have grace in our roots, then there's going to be grace in the fruit. The, the gospel belief results in gospel behavior. And so it's God's grace that changes who we are and brings about a different action. So the word and the action always go together. Now, here's what's interesting in this passage, though, is that it's not automatic, is it? There are some people in the community that don't want to live this way. There are some people in the community who don't have boldness in terms of their giving. They, they actually have something different that's at work in the midst of them. And it requires us to trust, to trust God's grace and the gospel. It requires us to follow the, the leading and the direction of God's spirit and, and to, to, to lean into that community. But not everyone's going to want to do that. And so this community, uh, I love and appreciate that Luke always presents the, the community as an imperfect place. It's never something that everyone is all together. Even though he says that grace was upon them all, not everyone's going to respond to that grace in the same kind of way. Sin was still a reality in their life. And so Luke is going to present two examples next. He's going to give us a positive example and a negative example. It kind of reminded me of uh, Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And you're going to see the best of times in a guy named Barnabas you see the worst of times in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And in the positive example of Barnabas, he actually shows up here for the first time in this book, uh, in this passage, but he's going to show up throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, the, the apostles begin to call him a son of encouragement uh, because wherever this guy went, uh, he just encouraged people. He just oozed grace and encouragement and love and kindness to all those that are around him. Don't you want people like that in your life? Can I get an amen? Can you use a few more of those? We need some Barnabases in our life, and we need them to surround us all the time. And what we see is Barnabas uh, begins, and he sees a need, and he goes and sells a field, and he comes and gives the, the money to the apostles. He says he lays it at their feet, which is a little bit weird. Like, don't come lay money at my feet. I think in our context, that would feel really awkward. Uh, and, and I mean, it, it actually happens in some places, but we don't want to be, a, we don't want to be one of those churches. Uh, but what, what's happening here is not really having to do with the apostles. It's really an act of humility for Barnabas to say he's not looking for honor. He's not looking for anything. He's just coming in quietly and setting something down and saying, I'm giving this to you without any strings attached. This, I'm surrendering this to you as though I'm just leaving it here. And you can do with it whatever you want because I'm not going to dictate what it is that you need to do. I'm just giving it to the church and trusting that you're going to use it to meet the needs that are there. And that kind of, it's an act of humility on Barnabas' part that we see here. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
when you look to, to verse 5, um, what's the very first word in chapter 5? But. There's always a big but in the Bible, isn't there? You get the situation, and it's like Barnabas is doing this amazing, wonderful thing, but there's going to be a contrast. And when you use that word, what it's saying is that we were going the right way, but something's going to turn us around and go another direction. And Luke is very purposely going to contrast Ananias and Sapphira to what it is that Barnabas did. And so Luke is going to warn us that the thing that will break down a community the thing that will destroy their togetherness, their sense of one heart and one soul, the thing that will destroy their witness, the thing that will destroy the power of, the, of, of, of their testimony is, um, is sin within their midst. Now, it's interesting. Let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. This couple, Ananias' name actually means Yahweh is gracious. The Lord is gracious is what his name means. So when he acts in this way, he's actually going to undercut his own name. Sapphira's name means beautiful. And you have this beautiful community that's taking place, but sin is going to come in and corrupt this situation. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property, they bring the proceeds, they give it to the church, but they lie about what it is that they're giving. Now, when you begin to look at this, we, we kind of know the end of the story because we read it earlier, right? That both of these individuals are going to drop dead in an instant. So we know this is going to end very poorly for them. And if you're like me, when I see someone that's judged instantaneously in a sense like that, what ought to happen for us is we go, what did they do? I don't want to do that. Like if there's a landmine out there that they just stepped on, I don't want to walk through that same territory. I would sort of like to go around whatever it is that brought that upon them. And so, uh, in fact, twice it says in here that great fear descended upon the community. So the people that watched this felt probably even stronger than you and I do when we think about this kind of thing unfolding. So what is it that, that really was the problem with what they did? At first, you might think the sin was that they kept back part of their money. It's like, well, they, they didn't give everything. They should have given more. They, they should have, if they'd have given more, then God would have been happy with them. But do you notice that's not at all what happens in the passage? In fact, Peter says the exact opposite. He looks at them and he just kind of dumbfounded. He says, how could you? Why would you lie about what it is that you gave? And he, he, he goes through a series of questions. He says, look, was that property, did it not belong to you already? Meaning that was yours to do with it, whatever you wanted. You owned the property. No one told you how to do anything. And then once you sold that piece of property, uh, you had all the money, you had all the proceeds to yourselves. Who did those proceeds belong to? They all belong to you. Like those did, no one had any right to that except for you. You had freedom to do with it whatever you wanted to do. Peter's saying there's no one that obligated you or, or manipulated you or coerced you to have to do this. You chose, though, to be deceitful about it. And so the land was his, the proceeds were his. He had no obligation to give it to the church. Why is it that he came and he said, hey, we've got this money. We sold it for this great amount, and we want to give you that amount. What caused him to do that? Well, Peter says twice. He says, you lied that ultimately this is the problem, was that they were deceitful about what it was that they did. In fact, there might be a, a parallel here to Genesis 3. Remember, we had the original sin of Adam and Eve, and they didn't trust the Lord's provision. They didn't trust his goodness, and they thought, maybe if I do something different, I can get a little bit more from myself. I'd like to have God and a little more. And so in some ways, this uh, one guy called this the original sin of the church. Um, because it's dealing with their hypocrisy. See, they disregarded the kindness of God and the presence of God in the community. 
And they didn't see the relational aspect of their sin against God. Now, here's what's, what's ultimately, I think, extra sad about this scenario, right? What Ananias and Sapphira did was actually commendable. I mean, they gave money to the church. They gave money to the needs that were there. They heard about the needs in the community, and they said, hey, we want to help with that. And they came, and they gave money away. That, on a surface value, is, is a good thing, is it not? The, that's a commendable act. That's something you look at and go, man, way to go. You, you trust the Lord, and you stepped out in faith. Um, and so at first, uh, you know, it looks like what they did was, was good. But the problem is that there was, uh, there was a deceit that took, that took place in the midst of that. Peter exposes their fraud. Now, we don't know how Peter knew about this. We don't know if he kind of heard through the grapevine that kind of the sales price, and when he got the money, he was like, hold on, those two things don't add up. Like, we're going to give you everything we got. And he's like, well, I heard from so-and-so you gave it for, you sold it for this, but you're only given this. Not great of math, but those don't add up. And so, you know, Peter could have done that. It could have been that Peter just read it on their faces and just said, man, there's something at play here. It could have been that God just informed Peter that there's a supernatural kind of understanding that the Lord made it known to him uh, what had happened. But somehow Peter knew the truth. And he says, um, why is it that you lied to us? See, the problem was their desire for human recognition was more important than their desire to honor the Lord. They wanted the honor of men more than they wanted the honor of God. And so uh, to me, at the end of the day, they, um, they didn't want to literally sacrifice everything that they had in order, but they wanted the, the, the recognition that they had. And so when you think about this, isn't that the problem with, with hypocrisy? Isn't that what the damage it does to a community is it, it, it erodes our understanding and our, and our trust of God? And what's dangerous in this deal is that when that hypocrisy actually dresses sin up in religious garb, which makes it even more dangerous than, than other just purely fleshly sins because it takes on the appearance of something spiritual, um, which becomes even more devious. It's interesting that Sapphira has a chance to repent or change the answer, but she just doubles down and says, nope, that's exactly what we did. We sold it for that amount. Um, I, I think the irony is, is, is thick. When you think about Ananias' name, Yahweh is gracious, but I'm still going to try to buy my way into the favor of the spiritual community. I'm not going to trust his grace. Do you understand what's going on here and what, what's happening between uh, verses 32 to 37 and then what you see in the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira? See, in 32 to 37, this community was built upon great power in understanding and trusting the grace of God and the message of the gospel. And grace was upon them all. It's this great grace was there. Ananias and Sapphira were doing something that directly undercut or undermined the gospel and the word of God's grace. G.K. Chesterton said, the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. Yes. Isn't that painful? Yes. And is there any more, more frequent argument that we hear from friends who are not believers than that the church is filled with hypocrites? And they look and they say, man, if the gospel's true, if the message is true, if the Bible is true, why do people seem so dishonest and angry and calloused all the time? They claim to be Christians. See, this sin of hypocrisy is devastating to the mission of the church. What was it that Jesus said in Acts 1 that disciples were to do? You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What hypocrisy does is it directly undercuts the witness of the church because it proclaims a different gospel, a gospel that says you have to earn your way, you have to make your way, you have to pretend, you have to fake it. Grace is not enough to trust. 
And here's the thing, more than adultery or cheating on your taxes or even murder, this is a danger to the church. Because there's other things we can look at and go, well, no one thinks that's right. We all know that's wrong. But when we dress up a sin as a religious or spiritual thing, it becomes even more insidious. Um, and, and what Ananias and Sapphira were doing was they were building themselves up and dressing themselves up and going to the religious party, but they didn't really trust the grace and the person of Christ. You see the, the danger of people like that that would become and viewed as pillars of the community? As those who are models and examples that others are to follow, but this is what's going on within the hearts, and that eventually is found out, isn't it? Here it's found out really quickly. In, in our experience, though, it's always found out eventually. Um, we, those things eventually bubble up. And really what they were doing was they were trying to prove that you could earn your way to spiritual, um, to, to spiritual standing, both before God and in the community. And so there's a hypocrisy that's there. Uh, Tim Keller makes the point, he says, uh, if you follow that trajectory out and think about what that does in the life of a community, think, think with me again that this is, this is the only Christian church at this time, right? That, that truly had experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit birthing this through the, the understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection. This group, now there were other God-fearers and believers and the gospel was rippling out quickly. But when you think of the, the, the movement of God, this was the first church. That, that had been filled with the Spirit and began to go out and witness in fulfillment of Acts 1. And so you've got one church, and God is going to fight to protect the purity and the goodness of that church. He's going to make, a, to draw a line here really quickly. And so, friends, anything that undermines the grace of, uh, the grace of God is a danger to the church. You understand that we, we serve and we give and we live as a response to the grace of God, not in order to earn the grace of God. And if we ever get those two things out of order, we're in trouble. We can't ever serve in order to earn our way and make a name for ourselves. There's nothing more dangerous to the health of a church than Christians that are trying to earn their way and prove their worth to others and prove that they are more right or more spiritual or more, uh, more important and superior than others. Can you imagine if Ananias and Sapphira became leaders in the church? And this is the way they operate. And this is the one church that every other church was going to model themselves after and ripple forward. So God intercedes, and he executes an immediate judgment on this. But we also see there's spiritual ramifications. Uh, beyond the practical eye, you notice there's also a spiritual element. Uh, Peter says that Satan was trying to undermine what the community represented. He says, how is it that you allowed Satan to fill you and lead you and, and cause you to lie to the Holy Spirit? John Calvin said this, Satan entered this holy group under the guise of commendable behavior. Satan attacks the church in this way when he cannot win by open warfare. So he's coming through the back door. He says, I'm going I'm to bring the danger not from the outside. I'm going to bring danger from the inside. And I'm going to cause a crack in the foundation of this young church. Peter asks, why has Satan filled your heart? It's interesting that word filled is the same word that is used in Acts 2 and it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit or, or even just... A few verses before this, it says they were filled with the Spirit, and so they responded with boldness. It's the same word here that says you were filled with Satan, meaning the controlling element of your life was now the evil one rather than the holy one. And so Satan is at work in their life. Um, friends, why, why is hypocrisy such a problem to the church? Can I just give you seven really quick reasons? It insults God. It manipulates reputation. It dehumanizes others. It erodes togetherness. It instills cynicism. 
it mocks grace, and it damages witness. Um, the church has, uh, hypocrisy has a horrible impact on the life of the church and is a great danger. Uh, remember, this is, the group of, uh, this is a group of people that God, through the birth of His Spirit, the beginning of this movement, He had begun a new community. And they were the presence of God. The presence of God was in their midst. And they carried the good news of the gospel and their victory of the resurrection. And they were preaching that within their world. And they were going out with witnesses into their world. And yet, um, in the midst of that, the sin has crept up right within the heart of the church. And so God immediately executes judgment on them. And uh, some people try to explain away. It's interesting when you read. They try to explain away what happened with Ananias and Sapphira and say, Oh, the psychological shock of being confronted in front of everyone, all the community caused a physiological reaction and they just had a heart attack and fell over and died. And that seems harder to believe than that God executed judgment, to be frank, especially that it happened to two of them three hours apart instantaneously uh, in the same sort of a setting. Uh, it's interesting that they immediately wrap uh, his body up and take him out. They probably viewed that as this is someone who's unclean uh, because he was, uh, Peter says, uh, filled with the evil one. We want him out of our midst as soon as possible. Uh, it's interesting that Sapphira falls at the feet of the apostles, that she drops. Where was it? Barnabas had left his good gift. He'd left it at the feet. Sapphira leaves a different gift at the feet, and it's a gift of judgment. Friends, judgment is a hard thing for us to understand, I think, in our day. And yet judgment is throughout the Bible. And oftentimes in the scriptures, whenever you see a new community or a new movement of God show up, God will execute judgment to just issue a warning to the people of God that I am to be treated as holy, that I am in your midst, that I see everything that happens. The, the intent of this passage is for us to go, oh, the Holy Spirit sees everything, and the Spirit is, is the one, and we are accountable for everything that we do. But you see it in Moses with the golden calf. Uh, you see a judgment that's executed there. You see it with Nadab and Abihu. You see it in Joshua 7 with Achan's sin. You see it with uh, David in the new community with the Ark of the Covenant. You see these judgments that are issued as warnings for us to understand that God will be treated as holy and that we're to trust ultimately and put our confidence in Him, not in ourselves. And so ultimately this is what happens. You think about it sometimes. Kids, parents, do you do this with your children? Like you understand when they're little, you have to keep them on a pretty short leash. Like if you let them get a block down the road, it's hard to keep them out of the street. But, uh, but, it, but if they're close by, you can sort of keep them there. I think it's that sort of thing. I know oftentimes in talking to teachers, they go, man, the first three weeks of school, you got to kind of, you know, draw the line and make sure everyone understands what's happening because they need to understand the rules and the way we work and the way everything does that. I think there's a little bit of something like that happening here where this new church, this one group of people that God has begun this movement on that's going to ripple out through the earth, he says, look, We've got to get this right. And so he sort of hits fast forward on what's going to happen to Ananias and Sapphira later and says, let me just show you what the trajectory of this kind of behavior leads to when you're not really trusting the love and the grace of, uh, that I'm offering, but you're ultimately trying to earn your way through your, own, uh, through your own operation. And so he executes a judgment. Um, let me just shift and ask a question. What do we do with this? Because uh, that can be a hard question, right? Well, what is it that, how do we respond to this? And I think the answer is pretty clear. We actually need to go back to what it was the early church did. Do you remember what it was that gave them boldness or when this boldness showed up, uh, what it was that, that was prevalent in their community? In verse 33, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You know what the antidote to hypocrisy is? 
It's Jesus and his grace. The antidote to hypocrisy is trusting the gospel. The antidote to the gospel is being more fearless about what it is that Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. And when we understand that that Jesus died, he paid for all of our sins. He said it is finished on the cross and he went to the grave and then he John wicked his way out of there and, and dominated sin and death and stepped out of the grave victorious over it all because it could not hold him down. And there was nothing to stop him because of who he was and what he accomplished for us. And because of that, that should give us freedom not to have to pretend anymore. Not to have to fake it. Not to have to pose. Not to have to carry on as though we're something we're not. But it gives us freedom to simply trust the grace of God. So what is it we do with hypocrisy in our lives and in our community? And we point back to Jesus. You go, man, why would you, we do, we do what Peter did. You know, why, why would you pose? Why would you lie? Why would you act in that way? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And he points back to the great power of the gospel and the great grace of God in the midst of that. And that's where we need to run as well. It's interesting, there's a subtext, I think, to this whole passage. And I want to just point out one other, one other little section here for you in Romans one of the, uh, Romans chapter 8, and one of the kind of under things, uh, underlying things is this connection between the Holy Spirit and boldness that you see throughout, uh, throughout this, whole, uh, this whole passage. And in Romans 8, uh, I think we see a key explanation that Paul gives for why it is that we can, that we can operate uh, with such boldness when the Spirit is present in the midst of our community. Verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Can I just stop there for one second? Do you understand your sonship and daughtership underneath the Heavenly Father? That that you have a Father who is in heaven, who's unchangeable, who's eternal, who created you, who sustains you, who gives you breath, who sustains your life, who promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So some of us are chasing after life because we are fearful that, that things are going to unravel. We are fearful that if we don't prove ourselves, we're not going to be accepted. We're fearful that if we don't earn our way, we're not going to be included. And yet what we see here is that, that we are sons and daughters and we don't have to clamor after it. And the Holy Spirit His presence in our life testifies that that is true. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. Fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, that's good news. You didn't receive a spirit of fear that makes you tremor and go, and I don't know what, what ground I stand on. I don't know if I'm going to be okay tomorrow. I don't know if God's going to abandon me if I don't do things. I don't know if I'm accepted in this community of the church if I don't give enough away. I don't know if I, if I don't earn my way and do enough that I'm going to be received. And what the grace of God and what the community of God and what the spirit of God is testifying is, that's not, what, that's not of the Lord. That's of the evil one that makes you think you need to deceive your way into being accepted by others. And what the gospel says is you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pose. Jesus already exposed us all on the cross. He said you weren't enough. You needed a savior. 
which is why I came to save, to seek and to save the lost. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And it's why we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We receive a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Father. Can you be bold as a kid in the lap of your father? Can you bold, be bold as a kid at the playground with Daddy? That's what he's saying is you don't have fear. You have fearlessness because you have an Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. What, what does an heir receive? Everything. Everything that's owned by the Father goes to the sons and the daughters. And so if we're children, if we're adopted, if we're his, then everything that he has falls to us. How does that affect your ability to give generously and radically and cheerfully? It's like, well, this little bank account I've got over here isn't really that big of a deal because I am an heir of everything in the world. That if I'm an heir of the Father, then I uh, literally am a co-owner of the entire uh, of the entire earth. So why would I hold on to this in fear or pretend and say I'm going to give something and hold back apart for myself? We don't need to be fearful. This is because if we're children, then we're heirs, and we're heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ. That ultimately all of that comes through the person of Christ. Friends, is that good news? Yeah. So, so what do we do to fight hypocrisy in our own lives and the lives of our community? And we run to the gospel. We run to grace. We trust it completely, knowing that, that uh, the, the empty tomb of Christ can't be deconstructed. Um, he walked out. It's empty. He's victorious. And that victory is ours. And because of that, we are now co-heirs with Christ of the Father so we can walk in fearlessness, not in fear. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love, that you would cause us not to be people of fear, but people who are fearless. Make us bold about the gospel of your grace. Make us bold about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Make us bold about the return of Christ when all things will be made new. And because of all that, make us bold in our love towards one another and our generosity to others and the way in which we serve and give and live in our world. That we might look like Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. Father, we pray it all for his glory. Amen.